Matthew Warnell for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And got a lot to talk about today. First off, unfortunately, more bad news for the traditional Latin Mass. On July the 22nd, Wilton Cardinal Gregory of Washington, D.C. finally pulled the trigger on his decree for the implementation of Traditionis Custodes, which is Pope Francis's motu proprio, uh, I dare say unjustly restricting the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass. So we're going to look at that. We're also going to take a look at our Lord's warning about false prophets and wolves in sheep's clothing and the Church's traditional teaching on the necessity of good works. Also, if time allows, later on in the program, we'll have a little Catholic kryptonite segment on how to refute the Protestant heresy of salvation by faith alone. Uh, but first, we've been looking in the past few weeks at the Sunday Gospel for the ordinary form of the Mass, but this week I want to share the Sunday uh, readings that began this week in the extraordinary form with the readings for the seventh Sunday after Pentecost. So first, the epistle is from um, Romans 6, 19 through 23. Brethren, I speak a human thing because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as you have yielded your members to serve uncleanness and iniquity unto iniquity, so now yield your members to serve justice unto sanctification. For when you were the servants of sin, you were free men to justice. What fruit, therefore, had you then in those things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of them is death. But now, being made free from sin and become servants of God, you have your fruit unto sanctification and the end, uh, and the end of life everlasting. For the wages of sin is death, but the grace of God, life everlasting in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, Paul uses the, word, uses the words servants and to serve to denote a, a full and unconditional subjection of the Christian believer to God without walking any longer according to his own will. And in regard to the state of sin, those words indicate the, the dominion of the passions over the sinner. Right? You've got to serve somebody, like Bob Dylan said. So St. Paul says that nothing's more reasonable that we should labor as much for God and our own salvation now as we formerly did for sin and hell. Because it's impossible to be neutral. Every person serves a master, either they're subject to God or to sin. And Paul tells us that a Christian is not someone who cannot sin, but rather is a sinner who belongs to God. You know, at our baptism, the same thing happens to us as happened to Jesus in the Jordan. The Holy Ghost descends on us. God the Father looks upon us and says, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. The initial grace of justification isn't something that we deserve. It's not something we can earn. It's not something we can purchase. It's a free gift of God who gives it to us out of his infinite love and mercy. Baptism frees us from both original and personal sins and the punishment due them. It fills us with the Holy Spirit, that is, the, the indwelling presence of the Blessed Trinity, and it makes us the adopted children of God. And yet our concupiscence, our, our inclination to sin, remains, as does our free will, a will that itself remains weakened by the fall. So in consequence, you must constantly choose between two masters, between sin or Christ Jesus. And the temptation remains to return to a life of sin. But as St. Paul asks, what fruit do we have from our sins? He says the wages of sin is eternal death. 
That is all that you can expect or hope for in a life without God. But by following Christ as your master, you may receive his gift of eternal life, a new life of grace that begins right now and continues forever with him. So we should think often on the wages of sin, namely eternal death. And when we are tempted, ask ourselves, what will I gain uh, by my lust or by my act of injustice or, or by my revenge? You know the answer. Sin brings us nothing but eternal death. So the question is, shall you and I, created to inherit eternal life, shall we, for, for a momentary pleasure, make uh, of ourselves instead the heirs of eternal death? And now, the Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 7, verses 15 through 21. At that time, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of false prophets who come to you in the clothing of sheep, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. By their fruits you shall know them. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? <clears throat> thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, and the evil tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can an evil tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit shall be cut down and shall be cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doth the will of my Father who is in heaven, he shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. So our Lord is talking about false prophets. What does he mean? Well, there's the, the traditional answer, uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, because it promises us honors and riches, but in the end rewards our labor with nothing but disgrace. Number two, the flesh, which promises pleasures and joys, but in the end leaves us with nothing but regret and a guilty conscience. And number three, the devil, who promises us a long life and plenty of time for repentance. While the obstinate sinner is often, often uh, suddenly cut off in the midst of his sins. And number four, and this is the, the part that's neglected so often these days. All such evil-minded persons as would conceal their wicked purposes under the mask of virtue and honesty until they have entrapped unwary souls and drawn them into all kinds of shameful misdeeds. It is these false prophets of Satan, these wolves of hell, that create havoc in the flock of Christ. And there's no shortage of them in the church today. So how do we know who's who? Christ says, Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit shall be cut down and cast into the fire. And he's warning us, I mean, the church traditionally would teach us that He's warning us that faith alone without good works, or in other words, the mere desire for heaven without the corresponding practice of virtue, will not save us. Christ says plainly, not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doth the will of my heavenly Father. So a true Christian, therefore, endeavors to fulfill in all things the will of God and to secure their salvation by the exercise of good works. Like St. James says, what good is it, my brethren, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? You can see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. One wonders 
<clears throat> since that is in the scriptures that our Protestant brethren uh, claim is the sole rule of faith, how it is that they can believe in salvation by faith alone. And uh, if time permits, we're going to talk about that later in the program. The question before us now is, what are good works? And the church's answer is that good works are all actions of men which are done according to the will of God, number one, number two, for the love of him, and number three, by the help of his grace. And the church identifies the, the principal good works as prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. And prayer would include not only personal prayer, like the rosary, the chaplet, um, but all, and of course, mass and the liturgy of the hours, but it also would include all acts belonging to the service of God, any of which may be considered prayer. It's like um, St. Therese of Lisieux said, pick up a pin for the love of God and count your day well spent. And then number two is fasting, which includes all mortifications of the body. <clears throat> Anytime you abstain from some good thing or practice self-denial for the love of God. And then finally, number three is almsgiving, which is not just giving money to the poor or contributing to the church's various ministries, but all of the works of mercy, both corporal and spiritual. It's a quick review. The seven corporal works of mercy were enumerated for us by Jesus himself in Matthew 25. To feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, to visit prisoners, originally to ransom the captives, uh, to shelter the homeless, to visit the sick, and to bury the dead. These corporal works of mercy are necessary, and they can be meritorious for those who do them, because Jesus said, Amen, I say to you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brethren of mine, you did for me. And then we have the seven spiritual works of mercy, to admonish the sinner, to instruct the ignorant, to counsel the doubtful, to comfort the afflicted, to bear wrongs patiently, to forgive injuries and offenses, and to pray for the living and the dead. And all appearances to the contrary, uh, since these works are, seem to be rather ne neglected by some in the church today, these spiritual works of mercy are objectively more important than the corporal works of mercy, because they're not concerned primarily with alleviating uh, the physical suffering of our neighbor, but have for their object our neighbor's eternal salvation. So these are good works. But what makes them meritorious? Number one, they have to be good in themselves. Um, you know, God can bring good from evil things, but a good work has to be good in the first place. Number two, it, it must be done in the grace of God. Okay, so you need to be in the grace of God to perform uh, a good for your good works to be meritorious for your salvation. Uh, so, uh, and number three, you you must be in a state of grace. Number four, they must be of your own free will. Somebody puts a gun to your head and says, you know, write a check to to the church. <laughs> that that's not meritorious because it it has to be your choice. And number five, to be done with the good intention of pleasing God. And the big question is, can we be saved without good works? And we're going to talk about that later in the program. In the meantime, uh, we're going to be right back talking about by their fruits you shall know them and Cardinal Gregory's uh, response to traditions custodians. All that coming up and more right after this.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. By their fruits, you shall know them. So says Jesus in Sunday's Gospel for the Extraordinary Form. And the Ordinary Form Gospel for last Sunday has a related message. Jesus asks, and which of you, if he asked his father bread, will he give him a stone <coughs> or a fish? Pardon me. Sorry, I had a frog in my throat. Um, which of you, if he asks his father bread, will he give him a stone or a fish? Will he give or will he for a fish give him a serpent or he, if he shall ask an egg, will he reach him a scorpion? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father from heaven give the good spirit to them that ask him? And yet for more than 50 years, uh, traditional Catholics have felt precisely like a child who asked his father for bread and received a stone. And I write about this in my book, Confessions of a Traditional Catholic, because I converted in 1996. You know, so I, I have no, I didn't have any experience of the traditional Latin mass until I discovered the so-called indult mass of John Paul II around the turn of the century. But I recently ran across an excerpt from a book by Dom Hubert Van Zeller. Now, he was a priest that was born in 1905 and lived until 1984. So unlike me, he was there for the whole experience of the church, uh, you know, before Vatican II, when the traditional mass was just called the mass, and then after Vatican II in the introduction of the new liturgy. Now, Dom Hubert, if you are unfamiliar with him, he was a popular Benedictine author. Some of his books are still in print. He was especially noted for writing about human suffering from a Catholic perspective. His books include The Mystery of Suffering and Suffering, the Catholic Answer. And although he personally was afflicted with illness for much of his life, he maintained an optimistic worldview. Uh, he wrote, all I can say is that had I been healthy all my life, I would not have prayed so well or put myself in God's hands. And regarding the virtue, the virtue of hope, he said, now hope starts off by knowing that life is going to be difficult. It admits that without grace, perfection is miles out of reach. It faces the idea of failure. It sees how there are bound to be disappointments and temptations all along the line, but it just goes right on trusting. A person who is strong in this kind of hope looks upon everything that comes along, even mistakes and serious failures, as being a chance not to be missed. So given his optimistic attitude and his popular writing on the subject of suffering, which is so universal, it isn't a surprise that his books were popular or that he received a great volume of mail. And it's also no surprise that many people who wrote to him were asking the same questions. So in 1975, uh, Sheedon Ward published a, a collection uh, of his letters that were written in response to various questions in a book that was called Letters to a Soul. And that is where I encountered his, encountered his response to a younger religious about the changes in the church. Remember, this is circa 1975. Dear X, since it is clear that you feel as I do about the changes in the church and in the religious communities of the more progressive stripe, <clears throat> you will be interested to know that about a third of my mail every day is made up of letters from people who complain bitterly of some of the innovations and who beg me to do something in the way of whipping up an opposition. But what can I do? beyond urging these correspondents, most of whom I have never met, to hang on and pray for a return to older ways. I'll repeat that. 
to hang on and pray for a return to older ways. Many have written to say that they do not go to Mass anymore, and that even their children are looking for deeper interpretations of the new rites than they are getting from the pulpit. This seems to me highly significant, since we were told a few years ago that the liturgical changes were introduced largely in order to attract the young. And then he goes on to describe in, in detail some of the you know, horror stories about the gross liturgical abuse and dissent among the religious orders. And at the end, this man, so renowned for, for his religious optimism, said this, You may live to see a return to Orthodox religious life, though not, I imagine, to the divine office as it used to be, in Latin and with prime as one of the hours. But I certainly shall not. But there is no harm in praying for such a return and working for it. This is all I can do now. Reverescit, I hope. And it's simply signed, Tom. Reverescit means it grows green again. But significantly, he says it grows green again, dot, 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 I hope. And he was correct. He did not live to see a return to Orthodox religious life, but it did happen. Back in 1986, John Paul II commissioned a panel of cardinals to answer the question, has the traditional Latin Mass been abrogated? And that panel included uh, Alphonse Cardinal Stickler and Cardinal Ratzinger, and they answered, no, the traditional Mass has not been abrogated. In fact, every Roman Catholic priest has the right to say it. So in 1988, John Paul II put out his motu proprio, Ecclesia Dei, in which he gave his permission for some priests to celebrate the traditional Latin Mass, known as the Ecclesia Dei Indult, and asking bishops to get a wide, give a wide and generous application to that indult for all the faithful who wanted to assist at the Mass of the Ages. And we all know how widely and generously it was applied. But then, in 2007, when Benedict XVI issued his motu proprio, Samorum Pontificum, he explicitly said that the traditional Latin Mass has never been abrogated, which was the finding of that panel of cardinals, and, and that it was never abrogated in light of co-primum, which we talked about last week, and that every Roman Catholic priest has the right to celebrate the traditional Latin Mass according to the liturgical books in force in 1962, which was the last revision of the traditional Roman Missal by John XXIII. And that included the Divine Office, or the Liturgy of the Hours, how the Divine Office properly called, with the Hour of Prime, uh, that even the famously optimistic Dom Hubert Van Zeller despaired of ever being restored. Now, the point I'm trying to make is simply that there's a difference between a right and a privilege, that a privilege is granted or taken away at the good pleasure of those in authority, but rights come from God. Rights cannot be taken away arbitrarily, certainly not justly. And this is likely why no pope has had the temerity to explicitly abrogate quo primum, which establishes the legitimacy of the traditional Latin mass in perpetuity. Although in Traditionis Custodes, Pope Francis sets out to abrogate Samorum Pontificum. But it's precisely in Samorum Pontificum that Pope Benedict sets forth the principle that what earlier, earlier generations held as sacred remains sacred and great for us too. And it cannot be all of a sudden entirely forbidden or even considered harmful. In other words, you cannot consider harmful what the church taught for millennia was the holiest thing on earth. 
nor can you forbid that which every Catholic priest has the right to do. Now, I know that no one has ever accused Pope Francis of being a profound philosopher, but the difference between a right and a privilege is a simple distinction. By their fruits you shall know them. These are the words of Jesus, and that is why Pope Francis's crusade to undo the good fruits of the traditional movement, which includes these new robust religious orders, many vocations to the priesthood, not to mention all the young families faithfully fulfilling their Sunday obligation every Sunday and adoring the real presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. That's why it's all so painful and confusing. As I've often pointed out, the traditional movement of Catholics devoted to following the perennial teachings of the Church is the only sector of the Catholic Church that's growing rather than shrinking. Which is why, it's, again, for, for so many, it's so confusing and so painful for the Pope to be so dedicated to eliminating the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass seemingly without any pastoral regard for those who assist at it nor any recognition of its good fruits. Well, last week, uh, Cardinal Gregory, Wilton Cardinal Gregory, issued his decree for the implementation of Traditionus Custodes for the Diocese of Washington, D.C. And as one commentator put it, it stands besides Cardinal Supich's decree as among the most restrictive, vindictive, heartless, and pastorally cruel. Now, why would someone say such a thing? Well, among the provisions of Cardinal Gregory's decree are the Holy Mass, uh, traditional Mass, is canceled at all locations in the diocese, but three, the Franciscan Monastery in D.C. and two locations in Maryland. Number two, the traditional Latin Mass may only be celebrated on Sundays and not on weekdays or holy days. Number three, there will be no traditional Latin Mass for the major feasts of Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost. And no other sacraments beside the Eucharist may be celebrated in the traditional rite. So no traditional baptisms or weddings or funerals, confirmation last rites. And number five, priests must ask permission to say the traditional Latin Mass even privately. Now again, Benedict XVI explicitly proclaimed that the private celebration of the traditional Latin Mass is the right of every Roman Catholic priest and therefore may be celebrated without any permission required. Again, you only need permission for some privilege, not for exercising your right. Furthermore, he said no permission is needed for the laity to attend such private masses. And furthermore, that the public celebration of the traditional Latin mass requires only the permission of the pastor, not the bishop or even the pope, because the pastor is the one in position, uh, in the position to know and respond to the genuine pastoral needs of his congregation on the one hand, and, and on the other, the priest's right to celebrate the traditional Latin Mass doesn't depend on permission from anyone. So ironically, um, in Cardinal Gregory's decree, the clergy are reminded that they may celebrate the new rite of Mass in Latin, but only so long as they do not celebrate it ad orientum, that is, facing the altar. Uh, Cardinal Gregory generously says that priests may apply for permission to say Mass, uh, the new Mass, ad orientum. But once again, I mean, somebody apparently needs to point out to him that ad orientum celebration is already in the Novus Ordo Missae's rubrics, and that the Vatican has repeat if, repeatedly clarified that such is the case. 
To put it another way, no permission necessary. Of course, in the reality of current circumstances, uh, some priests in some locations would undoubtedly face uh, unjust punishment or censure if they were try, to try and exercise those liturgical rights, at least in public. However, I suspect that priests who understand the inherent rights of venerable and immemorial tradition and who understands his own dignity as a priest within the Catholic Church is, you know, going to continue to offer the traditional mass, at least in private, and that he will generously offer traditional baptism, confession, etc., cetera, uh, to any who request them. Uh, marriage being, you know, matrimony uh, being the exception, perhaps, because you need um, you need faculties from the bishop to uh, marry people in the first place. And, uh, you know, if the bishop has explicitly said you can't do that in public, uh, you know, you may have an issue. The rest of these things, though, it should have no qualm of conscience. Okay, coming back to talk about this uh, a little more and uh, some other things as well. So stick with us right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Just to wrap up on our discussion of uh, Cardinal Gregory's implementation of Traditionis Custodes, it rather ominously encourages what can only be called reprogramming sessions for traditional Catholics who need to be reintegrated into the Novus Ordo. And again, what, what, what did the Church teach before Vatican II uh, that the Church doesn't still teach after Vatican II? Anyway, on a somewhat brighter note, uh, the decree calls for these norms to be reviewed in three years' time. So, at the very least, Catholics in Washington, D.C. are not facing a, a 2023 deadline for the total elimination of the traditional Mass, like the faithful in the Savannah Diocese under Bishop Parks. So, that's the latest, um, and I can say, again, on a hopeful note, at least Supich, Gregory, and Parks seem to be in the minority among their brother bishops. And if the Pope really wants to see an improved celebration of the ordinary form of the Mass, which I heartily encourage, I would suggest that he stop asking for reflections and simply implement the provisions of Redemptionis Sacramentum, which came out in 2004, precisely to put an end to liturgical abuse. And if he chooses to continue to ignore Redemptionis Sacramentum, he can't reasonably oppose those prelates who choose to ignore Traditionis Custodes. Finally, as I have said before and will again, if the bishops simply insisted on the proper celebration of the Novus Ordo Misa in the first place, most Catholics would never have sought out the traditional Mass at all. And that's no nonsense. So, good Catholics. Good Catholics go to Mass every Sunday, regardless of which Mass they attend. And in this one hour a week, they can expect to get preached to, to hear the gospel followed by a sermon or a homily. And, and like I say, it's expected. Last Sunday, the priest at the uh, traditional mass I attend said that you can expect to get preached at during the other 167 hours in the week also. 167 hours in the week also. <laughs> Movies, TV, social media, popular music, school, politics, they're all preaching at us 24-7. And what is the primary message? 
the primary message is the same diabolical lie that Satan told our first parents in the Garden of Eden, that disobeying God is the path to freedom. Father Bill McCarthy pointed out that if there had been no fall, then the hierarchy of the universe would have been God and then angels and then men. But because the second person of the Trinity united the divine nature with the human nature, the order is now God, then men, and then the angels. And when this was revealed to the angelic choirs, Lucifer responded, non serveam, I will not serve. His pride wouldn't stand for serving a God who had condescend to take on flesh, much less to serve his mother. And so, after Michael cast him out of heaven, he tempted our first parents in the garden with the lie that by disobeying God, we become like him. Which is, you know, how crazy is that? It's a contradiction. <clears throat> that we're going to be like God by disobeying God. Yes, he said, you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. And every sin since has partaken of this original transgression. You know, one of the very latest uh, examples would be the transgender movement. The latest manifestation of the lie that we can decide for ourselves what's good and evil. When God created the universe, he beheld and called it good. And when he created man, male and female, he created them, the scripture says. He said it's very good. But the world says, no, it's not good. God doesn't determine who's male or female. We'll decide for ourselves. We'll decide what's good and evil. We'll decide what our nature is. We'll decide what reality is. And that message is being pounded into our heads and those of our children every hour of every day. So what's a faithful Catholic to do? Let me digress for a moment. In the movie Blood and Sand, Tyrone Power plays a matador. And there's this, this seminal scene before the big bullfight where he's seen donning his matador suit of lights, right from the Montera, his matador's hat down to his traditional zapatilla slippers. And all to the dramatic accompaniment of a single Spanish trumpet. Right. And this movie trope has been seen again and again and again ever since, uh, you know, in Westerns. And, uh, you know, you see the fireman putting on his gear. You see the astronaut putting on his spacesuit. And uh, and recently you see the, the superhero movies where Batman, for example, puts on his super suit one piece at a time with a camera lingering over each piece of equipment as he takes them up. The mask, the gloves, the boots, the cape. Well, I was recently rereading Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and it struck me that there's just such a scene in this 14th century romance when Gawain dons his armor with the author giving us a minute description of each piece of equipment. So like so many things in our culture, this cliche goes all the way back to the Middle Ages. But I asked myself, what was the big influence on the Middle Ages? And the answer, of course, is the Catholic faith. And so it came to mind that even before Sir Gawain in the 14th century, St. Paul in the first century describes how Christians should put on the armor of God. And that brings us back around to the question, what is a faithful Catholic to do in our current situation in, in the church and the world? And I know I've said this before, but the fact is, when the world loses its mind, it's up to sane men to keep repeating the obvious. Okay, there's no expiration date on the truth. And what St. Paul said to the Ephesians in the first century is still true today. Our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but with the principalities, 
with the powers, with the world rulers of this present darkness, with the wicked spirits in the high places. Put on the armor of God that you may be able to resist on the evil day and having done everything to hold your ground. My brothers and sisters, we are engaged in an ongoing battle against the traditional enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And as St. Paul relates, a spiritual battle requires spiritual armor. So stand fast, he says, with your loins girded in truth, clothed with righteousness as a breastplate, your feet shod in readiness for the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, hold faith as a shield to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, this passage in Ephesians 6 speaks directly to the vocation of every Catholic. And this spiritual suit of armor represents a compendium of the Catholic faith. Gird your loins, shod your feet. Those are the bookends. He begins and ends with that. To gird literally means to encompass or encircle. In biblical times, to gird your loins referred to preparing for action by tying up your tunic with your belt, okay, with a sword belt. So we begin the spiritual battle by surrounding ourselves with the truth. As our Lord Jesus Christ declared, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. For this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. As parents try and get out the door to Holy Mass, you know, you have to constantly remind their children, you're not ready to go until you have your shoes on. So likewise, St. Paul tells us that our feet are to be shod with readiness for the gospel. And St. Peter speaks of this in his first epistle, 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope. The spiritual armor, it's the pillars of catechesis. Once girt and shod, we need to take up our spiritual armor, the shield of faith, helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, and sword of the spirit. And each one of these items can be understood as representing a crucial aspect of catechesis. The shield represents faith. And St. Paul says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. You have to know your faith to keep your faith. And likewise, you have to know your faith before you can share your faith or defend your faith. And the chief truths of the faith are found in the Apostles' Creed, which is the starting point of catechesis. The breastplate represents righteousness. And what does a breastplate represent? What is it? I mean, what does it protect? It protects the heart. Righteousness comes from following the moral law, which is written on the heart, as Paul says in Romans chapter 2. So our spiritual breastplate is the Ten Commandments and the theological and moral virtues. The helmet represents salvation. Salvation comes to us by grace through the merits won by our Lord Jesus Christ on the Holy Cross. And how do we encounter his grace? Through the sacraments and then through prayer. And finally, St. Paul says we're to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In other words, the Holy Bible, which St. Paul describes as living and effective and sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, in reference to that verse in Hebrews, Benedict XVI said, it is necessary to take seriously the injunction to consider the Word of God to be an indispensable weapon in the spiritual struggle. This will be effective and show results if we learn to listen to it and then to obey it. 
So having identified its principal parts as the pillars of catechesis, the creed, the commandments, the sacraments, and prayer, we can turn our attention to the concrete resources that help us to effectively put on the spiritual armor. The shield of faith. Where do we learn our faith? Well, we've been talking about it from the catechism. And there's many choices, including the catechism of the Catholic Church, the compendium of the catechism of the Catholic Church. If you're looking for unambiguous teaching, I would recommend the catechism of the Council of Trent, also known as the Roman Catechism, or simply the old Baltimore Catechism or, or the Penny Catechism. Then we have the helmet of salvation, and salvation comes through the sacraments and through prayer. The Holy Eucharist, the most blessed sacrament, is the source and summit of the Christian life, because in Holy Communion we receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. Therefore, every Catholic should have a Sunday, at least, or a daily missal, with all the prayers and readings of the Holy Mass, as well as a good prayer book or, or breviary. It was a book of hours. Um, there are publications like the Magnificat for the Novus Ordo readings and daily prayers, or Benedictus, which has the uh, extraordinary form readings for the Mass for every day, the Order of the Mass for Sundays, and, uh, and prayers and meditations for every day. And uh, we'll talk about the rest of the suit of armor, the breastplate of righteousness, and the sword of the Spirit, and how we take up those uh, pieces of armor. When we return, lots more no-nonsense Catholic right after this. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We're talking about the armor of God in Ephesians as representing the pillars of catechesis and uh, how each of those uh, pieces of armor can um, be represented by um, a book or books that help us to concretely put on this armor of God. And um, the we stopped at the breastplate of righteousness, which are the Ten Commandments and the moral virtues and theological and moral virtues and are exemplified by holy men and women throughout the centuries whom we call the saints. So to put on this armor of God, I think Catholics should often read the lives of the saints and spiritual classics, um, of which I cannot do better than to recommend the imitation of Christ. And then finally, we have the sword of the spirit. Clearly, no Catholic home is complete without a copy of the Holy Bible. And there are many, many translations, just many translations in English, from the, the Douay Reims, which is the traditional translation of the Latin Vulgate, all the way to the New Catholic Bible, which is a modern but mostly accurate translation. And I should mention that, that all of the resources we've talked about, from the, the uh, Catechism to, to the Imitation of Christ to the Holy Scriptures to the daily Mass readings in both the ordinary and extraordinary forms. All of these things are available um, for free online. You know, it take you all of 10 seconds to Google any one of these resources. The Church has given us this armor of God uh, so that we don't need to be anxious about the spiritual battle. Because the armor of God represents the ways by which we encounter Jesus Christ and thereby come to know him and love him and serve him. And this personal relationship is the heart of the Catholic faith. 
In the words of uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, he said, those who encounter the risen Jesus and entrust themselves docilely to him have nothing to fear. This is the message that Christians are called to spread to the very ends of the earth. And that is no nonsense. All right, I want to finish off today with a little Catholic kryptonite segment. Catholic kryptonite, by the way, a uh, term we have coined to denote those arguments that our separated brethren make that they seem to, to think are, are just self-evident, uh, that they maybe don't even admit, uh, would, have, would, would admit to an answer. And one of those is salvation by faith alone, and uh, which is the companion to uh, salvation, or that the rule of salvation is scripture alone. Oftentimes they will ask you to accept these things before even having a conversation. Now, in our gospel reading, in the first segment, we talked about the necessity of good works and what they are. But many of our Protestant evangelical fundamentalist friends, uh, you know, not only do they believe in salvation by faith alone, but they illustrate their understanding uh, of salvation through several verses, verses from the book of Romans, which they have termed the Romans Road. You see, Romans 3.23 says all have sinned. And Romans 6.23 says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 5, 8 says Jesus died for our sins. Romans 10, 8 through 10 says to be forgiven of our sin, we must believe and confess that Jesus is Lord because salvation comes through Jesus. And Romans 3, 28 says, for we consider that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Thus, by jumping back and forth and taking these verses out of context, they conclude that we are in fact saved by faith alone. And so they ask, why, why do Catholics think they have to work their way to heaven? Why do Catholics believe that good works are necessary for salvation when the Bible says we're saved by faith alone? And as we've seen, you know, uh, um, in a word, the, the, the Bible does not teach that. The Catholic Church, following Scripture, teaches that both faith and good works are necessary for salvation because that's the teaching of Jesus Christ. Scripture says in 11.6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. But Jesus requires faith working through love. It's Galatians 5.6. Furthermore, the Catholic Church does not teach that purely human good works merit salvation. Rather, Jesus teaches that good works offered to God by a person in the state of grace share in, share in the work and in the merits of Christ. I am the vine, you are the branches, he says. Without me, you can do nothing. And such good works, by God's grace, uh, for love of him, and with the help of his grace, and in the state of grace, will not only be rewarded by God, but they're necessary for salvation, which our Lord himself makes plain in Matthew 25, 31 through 46, where he describes the last judgment as being on works of charity, what we uh, referred to as the corporal works of mercy. So we are justified by faith, provided it's faith working through love, as it says in Galatians, and we cannot be saved without faith, but we are not saved by faith alone. According to the Bible, a person must repent, that's Matthew 4.17, believe in Jesus, Acts 16.21, uh, believe and be baptized, you see in John 3, 5 and Mark 16, 16, keep the commandments, Jesus 19, 16 to 17, at all, uh, live a life of charity, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, 
and perform good works, James 2.24, and receive Jesus in the Holy Eucharist. Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. And in the Greek, the word for life there is, is zoe, eternal life. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. Even St. Paul in the book of Romans affirms that God will repay everyone according to his works. Eternal life to those who seek glory, honor, and immortality through perseverance in good works, but wrath and fury to those who selfishly disobey the truth and obey wickedness. Jesus himself said, for the Son of Man will come with his angels in his Father's glory, and then he will repay everyone according to his works. Nowhere in the Bible is it written that faith alone justifies. When St. Paul wrote that we consider a person justified by faith apart from the works of the law, in Romans 3.28, he was referring to the works of the Old Testament law, and two verses later, he cites circumcision as an example. So certainly, if faith was really ruled out, if it really ruled out the necessity of good works for salvation, then St. James wouldn't have written, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Demonstrate your faith to me without works, and I will demonstrate my faith to you from my works. See how a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. For just as a body without a spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So the only place in the Bible where the words faith and alone appear together, the words not by are right in front of them. And remember, all of these verses come from the same Bible that our fundamentalist friends claim to be their sole rule of faith. But it doesn't stop them from believing in salvation by faith alone or from asserting that we Christians have the assurance of salvation, a.k.a. once saved, always saved. In other words, once you accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you cannot lose your salvation. And they would construe this <clears throat> pardon me, from St. Paul's words, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor present things, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's Romans again, Romans uh, chapter 8, 38 and 39. To which, as a good Catholic, I say, Amen. Christ continues to love us. Uh, he continues to love us even when we betray him. It was while we were yet sinners that he died for us. And according to the Bible, it is most certainly possible to fall into sin and to lose your salvation. It's Jesus himself who said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's Matthew 10, 22. St. Paul says we must remain in God's kindness or be cut off. It's Romans 11:22. In Galatians, he rattles off a whole litany of, saint, of sins and then says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul is writing to Christians. This, he's writing to the church in Galatia, to people that have already accepted the Lord. 
Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. That's Matthew 7, 2. Hence, St. Paul says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, not with the assurance that, that once saved, always saved. You know, as, as so many of our separated brethren, you, you hear their testimonies about how they were saved. You know, I was, I was reading a, a Billy Graham tract in the, in the supermarket right there in the, the frozen food aisle you know, next to the frozen peas, and I, and I gave my life to Jesus, and I was saved. And I'm afraid there's just there's more to it than that, and, and quite reasonably so. And that's why St. Paul writes, I drive my body and train it for fear that after having preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. And believe me, if St. Paul can lose his salvation, I guarantee that we can too. And that is no nonsense. Okay, um, just a couple of minutes left in the program today. First off, I want to say, as always, thanks for listening. Um, I'm hoping to have a uh, interview or two in the next couple of weeks. So look forward to that. There's lots of good books coming out. There's a lot of good resources for Catholics to help us through kind of these, you know, these confusing times. And I want to be able to highlight some of those for you. And uh, also want to remind you about um, Terry and Jesse's show that uh, we're going to have a series coming up on the TNJ show featuring uh, Archbishop Athanasius Schneider. And, and Bishop Schneider is uh, quite a voice uh, for orthodoxy in the church today. You're not going to want to miss that. Also, uh, I want to say not only thank you for your prayers, but uh, for your financial support as well. And if you can afford to in these difficult times, I encourage you to go to um, vmpr.org, find out all that's happening uh, with the apostolate right there on our website. And also you can click that donate button, become a monthly donor. There's lots of perks for monthly donors that give $25 a month or more. Or you can certainly give us a one-time gift because we absolutely positively cannot do it without you. And so uh, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for listening. I look very much forward to doing the whole thing again next week. And uh, also be on the lookout. We're going to have some more conferences coming up. Uh, our annual men's conference coming up next year. But we also have some coming up after the first of the year. Conferences on Mary, conferences on evangelization in these trying times. So until next time, may God richly bless you and your family.